Thanks, Amy. Hey, everyone. I'm Michael. I'm one of the uh, ministry apprentices here at church. Uh, I don't come here much. I'm normally based at Central. Uh, so, yeah, it's a really great uh, privilege to be able to visit North on, yeah, Evie's birthday. And I just want to say I really like that video, right? That was so cool to see through the years all these lives that God has changed. Um, and, look, I-, I was just thinking watching that. I was like, there's, mu- there's many more stories that I know of myself. And there's probably many that you yourself know of even in this room. So, you know, later on, we're going to have shared lunch and it's going to be a great opportunity to just hear each other's stories, encourage each other on how God has been at work in your lives over the past however many years you've been along uh, in this journey. Um, The other thing that's quite special about this week um, for those Asians in the room is Chinese New Year. And I just want to say to my kinsmen according to the flesh, Xin Yang Kuai Le. Look, um, fun fact for those of you who are not very, you know, familiar with Chinese New Year. Um, did you know that traditionally, uh, in China, the way you calculate age is a bit funny, right? So you actually age up, not on your birthday, but everyone all together ages up on Chinese New Year. So all of us have just increased in age just yesterday. Um, also, when you're born, you know how, like, Normally, you think, oh, when you're born, you're zero, and you, when you, you turn one after you've lived a year. Well, in China, uh, traditionally speaking, you are born as one, because you're born into your first year of life. So really, if we're thinking about it that way, Evie's not turning 12, we're turning 13. <laughs> so, Andrew, did we get that right on the cake? Maybe not, but that's okay. Look, there's different ways of calculating age, and one thing I just want us to think about is that, look, um. If we think about EV as, really, it's, it's not really the start of anything new, right? We, EV didn't invent the idea of a church. We're actually just the continuation of something that's been going around for a long, long time. Uh, and we're maybe not 12 or 13 years of age, but maybe 2,000 years old, right? So how do, you, how do you actually date the birthday of the church? That's something worth pondering on, because... Uh, a good argument could be made that the birthday of the church is on the day of Pentecost. For those who know, the day of Pentecost is when uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was poured out, and Peter preaches a banger of a sermon, and 3,000 people were converted and saved. Um, that was the very first church, the very first mega church. Is that the birthday of the church? Maybe. Another option I just want to give you is actually what we just read just now, in Matthew chapter 16, is actually the very first time that someone in the New Testament mentions the word church, and it's through the mouth of Jesus. Maybe this is the birthday of the church. This is when it all started. Now, we don't have to get so precise. It doesn't have to be this birthday, but what we're going to do today is going to look at this passage. Um, Yeah, we're going to look at chapter 16 of Matthew and see what reflections this passage has to teach us on our birthday. That's what we're going to do. Uh, But before that, let's pray. Father God, we have come to your word and we pray that you help us, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. And Lord, we do pray that the one who spoke this word initially will speak into our hearts today by his spirit, that we may know and we may take heed to what you're saying to us. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Now, 
So we are starting a new series in church. Uh, we're going to go through Matthew, and we're starting in chapter 16. So that might feel a little odd to some of you, because you're like, why don't we start at the beginning? Well, we started at the beginning uh, two years ago. So we've been going through the book of Matthew over a couple years now. So this is our third year into Matthew, and we're starting sort of right in the middle of the book. And in fact, chapter 16, the place we chose to start at is actually a very, very pivotal moment, right? It's one of these big turning points in, God, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the moment where Jesus' identity becomes crystal clear. See, before chapter 16, everything up to this point so far, Jesus has been this person who's been doing all sorts of things, and you know, people have been coming to him for miracles, and he's been preaching some banger sermons, but, but people don't know who he is. People are unsure who he is. So there's all this ambiguity, there's this suspense. Is he John the Baptist, resurrected? Is he Elijah, the one who was supposed to come? Or is he some other prophet? And so there's this ambiguity, and the suspense has been building up to this point in uh, chapter 16, where it's through the mouth of Peter, right? We learn who Jesus is. With no more ambiguity, we learn that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He is the one that Israel has been waiting for all along, all these years. Hundreds of years waiting for this one person that the prophets have been talking about. This is the king. Now, for our purposes, we're going to be looking at this church. So it's immediately after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah that Jesus makes mention of the church for the very first time. Let's read it together. It's in verse, six, uh, verse 18. Jesus says, And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, maybe let's just start with something easy. What is a church? Uh, what is a church? Now, I just want to say, a church is not a building. It's not a place. You don't actually go to church. That's actually bad grammar. Because a church, in the original language, means a gathering. So any gathering, you could call like a mob, a church. You could call a concert a church. But for the purposes that we're looking at, Jesus is saying he's not building any gathering. He's saying, I'm building my gathering, my church. So we don't go to church. We gather as the church. That's what churches do. We gather. So to be a church means that we are a gathering that's gathered around Lord Jesus. We are gathered by the Lord Jesus. That's what it means to be a church. Now, a second question that might be a bit more puzzling is why does Jesus introduce the concept of the church right here, right now? Why not earlier? Why wait 16 chapters? You know, have you been noticing or have you been familiar with the, uh, Matthew's gospel? You notice that the big theme that Jesus has been preaching on all this time up to chapter 16 has been the kingdom. It's been the kingdom this, the kingdom that. Here's the parable for the kingdom. Here's another one for you. Um, the kingdom has been the dominant theme, but why all of a sudden he's starting to talk about church now at this point? And I suggest it's actually because as Jesus has been proclaiming this kingdom, offering the kingdom to Israel, Israel has been rejecting him. Israel, sure, they like his miracles, but they, they haven't been accepting him as the Messiah. They're not recognizing who he is. And so Jesus is the rejected Messiah. But here... In verse 18, what Jesus is saying is there's a turn. Something has changed. This is the start of something new because Peter 
is the start of something new. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And now we're starting to see the believers starting to gather. The disciples are the new community that are accepting Jesus, no longer rejecting Jesus. This is the gathering of people who are entering the kingdom. So the church, what is the relationship between the kingdom and the church? Well, the church is the people that is gathered in the kingdom. They are in the kingdom already. They are, they are the people who have recognized Jesus, and to them belong the kingdom. So we are a gathering, but we are also a kingdom community. Now, we're not just a community of minions in the kingdom. We're not just servants here to be a slaves to our king. That's not the kind of community Jesus has gathered together. You see, Jesus calls us brothers and sisters, right? And that, you know, that's very well known. We call each other brothers and sisters. But have you realized just how precious that is? Here's the king. He's called us to be part of his kingdom. And the invitation is not to just slave around and do some chores around his kingdom. But we, are, we have a seat at the table. We are his brothers and sisters. We are his family his father is our father. Do you recognize this about what we have here as a church? Is that we are family. And do you recognize that this family, there's actually, this family is so precious that you could argue that this family that we have in Christ goes deeper than blood. More precious than our blood relatives. Really? Really? Can you take that? Is that shocking to you? Do you remember a story when, um, this is a, a couple chapters back, when a couple of people came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And what does Jesus do? He turns around to his disciples and he points to them and he says, these, these are my brothers. These are my mothers. Isn't that shocking? Isn't that shocking, especially for those of us who are Asians in the room? We really value family, right? Family is like the most important important thing to us. And so when we hear Jesus saying like, pointing to his disciples saying, this is my family, he's, it's almost like he's neglecting his, uh, his relatives by blood. He's almost being rude to his mom, right? That's disrespectful, we think. What is Jesus trying to show? Now, first of all, let's not misunderstand Jesus. He loves his mother, right? At the end of his life, he um, asked one of his disciples to look after his mother. He's not being rude here. But what Jesus is trying to show is that what his blood family need more than anything else, what we all need more than anything else, is to become his family by faith. It's to become his family by grace. Grace goes deeper than blood. See, even the best families we have on earth, I don't know if your experience of family has been good. We all have different degrees of enjoyment of our families, I'd say. But imagine the best family, the most loving of all families. Even that is just a foretaste of what Jesus is offering us here to be part of his family. That is the goal of what families are all about. God designed families so that one day we'll experience what it's like to have him as father, to call Jesus our brother. That is the purpose of families. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about family and community and what it means to be the church, uh, especially when we uh, get to chapter 18. We're going to see how radical this family really is. But before we get into all that, look, just for now, I think it's worth realizing and just reflecting on just how precious this is, 
how precious this family we have is. Now, Jesus is saying he's building his church. But did you notice Peter is mentioned? He's saying, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build this church. What is Peter's role in Jesus building the church? Um, Because, in case you aren't aware, Peter's name means a rock. So in some ways, Jesus is doing a play on words here. He's saying, uh, you are Peter, meaning you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Now that's a bit funny, isn't it? I know there's all sorts of interpretations to this. Obviously, we can go down many rabbit holes trying to chase how to interpret this passage, but I don't think we need to get complicated. I think the most natural reading of this actually makes sense. Because if you think about it, what Jesus is really saying is not that, Peter, you're going to be so great, you're going to build my church. No, Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church on you. So you have a function, but you don't take the credit. And so if we think about it with me, think about On the day of Pentecost, as we mentioned earlier, it's Peter, right, who preaches that first sermon, who gathers in 3,000 believers, and that was the first church. He's the one who started the very first church. But also, uh, we, we hear a lot about Paul, right? He's the apostle to the Gentiles. But long before Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles, who was it that first went to the Gentiles to preach the gospel? It was Peter. Peter was the one who first went to the house of Cornelius, and that was... It was him, it was through him preaching the gospel that the first Gentiles came and became believers and became Christians. So I think an argument can be made that it's not wrong to say Peter is the rock that Jesus founded the church because he is the one through his preaching that the first Jewish and Gentile believers were gathered into Jesus. Again, Peter does not take any credit. Now, now that also does not mean that We need a line of Peters, we need an endless succession of Peters to roar over the church, nor does it mean that we need Peter to tell us how to interpret the Bible, okay? So the Catholic, Roman Catholic approach has gone a bit too far on this. Peter does play a critical function in the birth of the church. We have to recognize that. He was the first disciple to name Jesus properly, name him as Lord, Messiah, Son of God. But he's not anything special. Peter's not special. Nothing special about him. He's not extra godly, not extra holy. In fact, Peter does not live up to his name, right? His name is The Rock. So when you think rock, you think of someone like Dwayne Johnson, right? Like real solid. Peter's not like Dwayne Johnson. Peter's more like sand than rock, right? He buckles at any kind of pressure. Well, not any, but like at least we read of many incidences where uh, Peter kind of just buckles under the pressure. So what is... Jesus doing, choosing to build his church on this sandy man called Peter. And I think what Jesus is doing is trying to demonstrate his skillfulness as a builder, right? This Peter is a testament of how skillful Jesus is as the master builder of the church. He doesn't take a rock. He uses sand and forms it into a rock to build his church on. He takes what's deficient, right? And he makes it efficient for the most glorious thing um, yeah, ever. And that's, that's the skill, that's the power of God. That's the wisdom of God working through our weakness. Isn't it incredible that if we think about it, even our church, we have to recognize that, yes, there's been people who've labored hard. For example, the Hilston's family. Uh, we heard about a couple of weeks ago that Ron, how he thought he was inadequate. He, he felt his own inadequacy when he was thinking about planting a church here. 
And yeah, we have to say Ron is weak. He has inadequacies, but it's through God's power working through his weakness that this church was planted. So in some ways, we could almost say Ron was the rock that Evie was planted on. It feels preposterous, I know. We wouldn't say it that way because Jesus is the true rock, but he has chosen to use weak human vessels like Ron, like Andrew, like a lot of the pastors and other leaders here. And you know what? We should be grateful for these leaders that God is using used to build us up. We should be grateful for one another. In fact, I think it's worth reflecting right now. Think about, for you, who are the people in your lives? Who are the people that have built up your life? Who are the people in this room right now who you could thank and be grateful for? Maybe it's a connect group leader. Maybe it's uh, yeah, someone who's really been a model of Christian maturity. Or maybe it's been just someone who uh, really cared for you or dropped off a meal or just spoke a kind and encouraging word when you were struggling. Whoever it is, have a think of them and maybe later at lunch, thank them, right? Just thank them for being the grace of God in your life and thank God for them. So on our birthday, first we need to reflect on our identity, that we are the family Jesus gathered together. Second, we need to be grateful that God has used so many weak people to build us up. We need to be grateful for the journey that we had to, to today, and it's God's power working through the weakness of men. Now, as we reflect on the future, on our journey ahead, this is the last point. As we look on the future, we also have a lesson to learn, and it's the rest of this passage has some very helpful things to say. Now, I said earlier, chapter 16 is a big pivotal moment in the Gospel of Matthew. This is a turning point, Right? And we read the very precise turning point here in verse 21. Jesus says, it says, From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. My friends, this is a plot twist. It's not just any plot twist. This is the mother of all plot twists. I don't, I don't know if you recognize it. And in some ways, this is like you don't recognize it because you're too familiar with the story of Jesus, right? We all know what's going to happen. We all know. We've seen the spoilers. We know that he dies on a cross. Even those people who have never read the Bible know that Jesus is going to die on the cross. So it doesn't hit us as, with any surprise. We're not shocked. We're not awed by what's happening here. And so I think what we need to do is we need to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes for the one minute, all right? Imagine yourself right now as a first century Jew, right? Imagine that you've been following this teacher around for the last three years and, you know, suddenly you just found out that your teacher is the Messiah. He's the one. And so you're like, oh, I know. I know what a Messiah is supposed to do. I know. Yeah, let's get to Jerusalem ASAP. Let's get you crowned. Let's sort out the Romans. Let's make Israel great again, right? So it's like, there's all this ambition, all this drive, all this like excitement. And so what do you do when your Messiah, your teacher, comes up to you and he tells you, you know what, I'm going to go die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem for sure, but I'm going to die. What would you do? I think you'll do what Peter did, right? You take him aside and you'd be like, hey, uh, teacher, you were doing great so far, really good, superb. But you know, this is a bit of a blunder, you just... You might need to read the job description again. Getting killed is not part of the job. 
that's kind of what's going on here. They, they have this very fixed view of what a Messiah is supposed to do. And so when Jesus tells them that I'm going to be this kind of Messiah, they're like, huh? See, what we're going to see in the next couple of weeks is Jesus is going to tell them again and again and again that he's going to die. When he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to die. But they're not going to get it. They're not going to get it. They can't wrap their heads around it because they just can't comprehend a suffering Messiah. They can only imagine a victorious Messiah, a conquering Messiah. They cannot put Messiah and suffering together. It just doesn't fit. They haven't understood that the Messiah and the suffering servant of the Isaiah 53 passage is the same person. So this comes as a plot twist. It's a major surprise that Jesus says that he's going to go and die. That's his mission. But it's not the only surprise that Jesus has in store for us. There's a lot more surprises to come. As I said, this is kind of the mother of plot twists because it gives birth to so many more plot twists, right? So many more surprises. Jesus is really going to flip the system. He's going to say things like, the first will be last. The last will be first. He's going to say the greatest are those little babies, little ones. Yeah, they're the greatest. And he's going to say the most honorable are not the kings, but the servants who serve. Jesus is going to flip the system. And we'll look at all of those in due time. But right now, I just want to focus on the first surprise Jesus has for us. And he says this in verse 24. He says, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now we might ask, Jesus, why, 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 why do I have to pick up my cross? Jesus gives us two reasons. First, in verse 25, Jesus says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? What will anyone give in exchange for his life? See, this is the first reason Jesus gives for bearing and carrying our cross, and it's actually a statement of reality. Now, it doesn't feel like reality, and that's because our perception of reality is upside down. Right? We actually need our reality to be reconfigured. Our, we, we need to actually see things the way Jesus sees them. We think that the way to have the good life is to by maximizing you know, comforts, accumulating all our pleasures, and minimizing pain and suffering and the cross. That's our perception of reality. We think, oh, the good life means good, right? No suffering, no cross, please. But actually, the opposite is true. What Jesus is saying is, the one who tries to save his life by avoiding the cross, that's the person who will lose their life. But the person who bears their cross because of me, who risks his life, who loses his life, that's the person who will find true life. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't fall into the trap of comfort. Comfort is the devil disguised as an angel. Friends, comfort is not your friend. Comfort is the death dealer. Jesus says, whoever picks a wide gate, whoever picks the easy way, they think they found the way to maximum enjoyment of life, but actually what they found is death and destruction. It's the ones who try to squeeze in the narrow gate, who plod along on the hard way. Those are those who have found life. So that's the first reason Jesus gives us. We need our perception of reality to be rec recalibrated. Now, secondly, Jesus gives us another reason for picking up the cross, and that's in verse 27. 
He says this, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and he will reward each according to what he has done. Now, the second reason is a, is a motivation from reward. Um, sometimes I think Christians, especially godly Christians, we get a little uncomfortable thinking about rewards. We think, ah, oh, I shouldn't be motivated by reward. It almost feels wrong. But, you know, I think we really shouldn't try to be more godly than God because God's the one who's trying to motivate us with rewards. He wants us to fix our eyes on the reward, the reward of seeing Him forever and ever, living with Him forever and ever, the reward of seeing His face. You see, not all rewards have to be transactional. Not all rewards have to be payment for services rendered. Sometimes fathers might want to reward their children. It's not because the child has done anything that's like earned the father's love, but just because the father loves the child and they just want to, they just want to reward the child. And often the reward far exceeds whatever service that the child has done for us, right? So the reward, we shouldn't get caught up about rewards. In fact, I think the reward is actually the secret to bearing the cross. You see, once Jesus, uh, Jesus has once said, right? He said, come to me, all you who labor, because um, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. So Jesus says that what you have right now, what you're carrying right now, that is heavy. So I'm going to give you a better burden, and it's going to call the cross. The cross is meant to be light. It's meant to be easy. But how could carrying the cross ever feel easy? Because I think a lot of us in the room, we've had experience carrying the cross. We know what it is. Sometimes it really costs us. It really it takes sacrifice to follow Jesus. Sometimes carrying the cross feels like carrying a mountain, right? It's this big thing that we're just slowly carrying. How could the cross ever feel light? And I think really the secret is when we fix our eyes on the reward. Let me give you an illustration from the Bible. See, in the Old Testament, there's a character named Jacob, and, uh, you know, Jacob was a man of status, right? He is the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. But Jacob comes along, and he goes to another man named Laban, and he makes himself a slave to this man, Laban, and he works hard for this man, Laban, for seven years, seven long years he served as a slave. Why did he do that? Well, he did that because he wanted to marry his love, Rachel, which is Laban's daughter. And what we're told in the Bible is that those seven years felt like a few days. For Jacob, they were like a blink of an eye. See, the day when Jacob finally got to marry Rachel, he was like, hey, Rachel, Rachel, for you, those seven years were totally worth it. They flew by like in the blink of an eye. It's easy. And see, that's what it will be like for us when we see Jesus. When we see Jesus on that last day, we'll look back on our old cross, and we're like, oh, that old thing? Yeah, that was no biggie. For you, Lord, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. See, the secret for bearing the cross is to fix our eyes on the reward. The reward, ultimately, not of anything else, but of being with our Lord the one who loved us, who gave his life for us. So friends, as we reflect on the journey ahead, both personally, but also as a church, we need to think about what does it look like for us to bear the cross? What does it look like for us to avoid the trap of comfort? Now, 
Comfort can come in many shapes and sizes, in many different ways. Um, one day, uh, you will finally be able to move into the North Building. It will finally be finished, and it's going to be so good. Honestly, I'm going to tell you now, having your own building is so good, I've been enjoying the Central Building. It's great, okay? <laughs> when you settle into the North Building, though, that, that presents a problem. <laughs> Once you settle in, it's going to be so comfortable. It's going to be like hard to ever comprehend doing church in a tennis ball court or, you know, or a tent again. It's like, why would anyone do that? But, you know, I trust the day will come when we'll need to plant another church again, maybe further up north or somewhere else. And there will be many here among us who will pick up their cross, who will get in their gumboots again if necessary, and will gladly do it all over again because we love the Lord Jesus. He is our reward. And we can say to him, Lord, that cross, yeah, no biggie. And see, the more we focus on Jesus and we fix our eyes on him, the reward of seeing him, the reward of being him, the more the cross on our back will feel lighter and lighter until it becomes like a feather. So friends, let's pray and ask God to help us as we think about the years ahead. Help us to bear the cross and keep following Jesus. Father God, we are thank you. We're grateful for your son Jesus who first bore the cross for us. He did not seek equality with God, but he emptied himself. And Lord, we pray that we will follow him and imitate him. We will be forever reminded that he has suffered for us, paid for our sins, so that we no longer have to carry our sins. We no longer have to carry our burdens. But he has given us an easy yoke. He has given us a cross to carry. And Lord, it feels like death, but it actually leads to life. So we pray by your Spirit, help us to see that. Open our eyes, recalibrate our reality. Help us to love Jesus more and follow him closely. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.